Hello, I'm Julian Bergini and welcome to this Microphilosophy podcast. You might think a book called In Defence of Dogs is an unpromising basis for a philosophical discussion, but as we're about to hear, John Bradshaw's book actually approaches many thorny philosophical issues from a fresh and illuminating perspective. The discussion was recorded at Foyle's bookshop in Bristol, in association with the Festival of Ideas, and we join it right at the start. John founded and is director of the Anthrozoology Institute at the University of Bristol. Before we go any further, what is anthrozoology? Well, anthrozoology is the study of interactions between humans and animals. So it could encompass almost all of animal welfare, but in my case it doesn't. I specialise in companion animals, animals that people have in their homes rather than out on the farm. And joining us is Christine Nichols. She's a professor of animal welfare at the Vet School at the University of Bristol. But to begin with, John, I suppose one of the big themes that comes out of the book right from the beginning is what we might call this myth of the wolf, that really the ideas most of us have about dogs are informed by this very prevalent idea that essentially the dog is a kind of domesticated wolf and therefore we have to understand its wolf-like nature if we are to understand how to live with it and so on. And that just turns out to be, well, false, misleading? How would you best put it? It's not false because the dog is a wolf under the skin. The DNA is you know, virtually identical. It's distinguishable, but it's as identical or similar as you would expect within one species. So dog and wolf are the same species in strict biological terms. But that doesn't mean that dogs are wolves in the sense the way we want to treat them, the way we conceive of them and the way we interpret their behaviour because they've changed so much. You know, they've been domesticated for many thousands of years and we have changed them, or maybe they've changed themselves, um, or maybe a mixture of those two things, but they're really just not wolves anymore. And so while it was fashionable for, I, I suppose, the best part of a century to think of dogs as being just wolves in rather cute dresses and that you should kind of beware of the inner wolf inside your dog. It's not just that I think that's a, not a very useful idea ethically. I, I think the science, which is what the book is really trying to get across, is saying, no, that's not really very useful anymore. But dogs are really wolves in the same way that we're apes aren't we in a sense we are actually part of the same family biologically but we have a common ancestor that's the point and it makes as much sense to say a dog is a wolf say a wolf is a dog we don't think we should understand wolves by looking at how dogs behave so we shouldn't necessarily understand how dogs behave by looking at how wolves behave yeah if you if you can compare them one way around you can you compare a with b you can compare b with a so why don't people say well actually we ought to study wolf biology by looking at dogs i mean that would be an absolute anathema to all wildlife biologists because they regard dogs as being completely artificial, uh, unnatural, and that you can't learn anything from them. But as you're right, from a position of pure logic, there are a lot more dogs around than there are wolves, and they're an awful lot easier to study. Part of the problem is also people have misunderstood wolves because part of the idea of how to treat dogs is you have to understand they're a pack animal. Now that turns out again to be rather simplistic at least, doesn't it? I mean, there are essentially two things. One is that we've misunderstood the wolf. The wolf biologists over the last 20 years or so have rewritten the book on what is a wolf and how does it behave and how does it see the world because up to about 1980 or so virtually all the studies of wolves that were done were done in zoos and wildlife parks and they were done on groups of wolves that have been constructed artificially by humans and now unrelated wolves wolves that haven't grown up together don't like each other that's their default situation that they will be aggressive towards one another and so if you put a bunch of wolves that don't know one another very well into, into the same pen, they will posture a bit and then probably start fighting to the point where 
the biggest, fiercest, most aggressive, uh, most confident wolf wins, and all the other ones for thereafter get out of the way. And then it goes on down, so you get this pecking order where essentially the most aggressive animal is at the top and the one who actually would really rather like to leave but can't because there's all that wire in the way is at the bottom. And so that was essentially the picture that everybody had of wolves. That's what people believed they were. That's how they thought. That's how the wolves would like to construct their lives. Then it became possible to observe wolves in the wild over long periods of time. You didn't just see one in the distance and then it ran off. You were actually able to radio track them, follow them in helicopters, put radio transmitters on them, leave them for a year, get them back again, find out what the wolf had been up to. All the new technology. And also wolves being reintroduced into areas in the States where they previously hadn't been, which is, of course, where all the scientists are. They suddenly discovered, no, actually wolves don't live like that at all. They live in family groups, just like lots of animals do. And what happens to form a pack is you get a male and a female have a, a litter. The litter, if they're in the right environment, there's enough food around, instead of leaving when they grow up, they stay. They stay put and they help their parents with the next litter in the next year and so on for two or three years until the pack gets too big and then probably it splits in two or maybe one of them dies and gets replaced. But essentially what the, the, the wolf social system is, is a family system where the parents keep an eye on the young, the young learn from the parents, and the young stay there uh, as volunteers. They're not being forced to stay there by their aggressive parents who are saying, you, you know, you're not allowed to leave, because clearly they could leave if they wanted to. It, it doesn't actually make any sense. And, and it, it turns out that it indeed does make sense that they don't, they don't leave because they learn a lot from their parents and their parents benefit from them uh, looking after the next generation or the next, uh, next lot of, of young. So suddenly we have a different picture of the wolf to the one that the dog people had latched onto. The dog people had latched onto this aggression-based system where the top dog wins and the bottom dog gets out of the way if he knows what's good for him. Suddenly that appears to be highly artificial and that the wolf um, is, a, is a different animal, it's a family animal, and it bases its social uh, attachments on affection, not on aggression. That preconception, that idea we have about the wolf and the pack, has all sorts of knock-on effects with uh, received wisdom about how to train dogs as well. Yes, I mean, there is a lot of writing about and practice of the idea that you must control your dog because if you don't control your dog, it will come to take over your life. I think that you have to split the thing into two, really. One is that you need to control dogs. There are certain people who've criticised this book who criticise a certain type of trainer, the ones that I would tend to support, on the grounds that they encourage people to let their dogs do what they want. A dog that's doing what it wants is going to end up getting run over or into some sort of trouble, or the owners are going to get into trouble. You know, it, it, it isn't a good idea not to control the dog. We are the species that should take charge and organise a dog's life. It doesn't really have a, much of an idea how to organise its own life uh, while it's living with us. We need to be responsible. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we have to go to war with the dog. The idea that you actually can need to have a struggle with your dog throughout the entire life that, you, that it has with you doesn't chime at all well with the idea that you're having your dog for companionship. I, I really love my dog, but I really have to worry about it taking over my life. <coughs> I don't, so you don't really need to do that anymore because the whole idea is that, that there is no actual evidence that dogs are trying to take over your life. They're trying to control a few things. You know, they, they get hungry, they need something to eat. They need affection. They will work very, very hard to get affection. It's what distinguishes the dog from the wolf. But that's what motivates them. They don't want to take over your life. What they want to do is just live happily with you. 
In fact, that seems a bit of a strange misunderstanding about dominance altogether, because I was reading in your book about this idea that some trainers have, that dogs are trying to climb the social ladder, constantly trying to get to the top of the status ladder. Now, I work more on chickens, where pecking orders were first described, but it seems quite a misconception, because these can often be quite peaceful groups once everything's been sorted out, and the ones at the bottom have certain benefits. They're not always trying to get to the top, so it's not a constant struggle to get to the top. There are costs to being dominant as well as benefits. It's an issue sort of just we touched on already, which is actually how you understand animals and how you study them, which I think is, is quite a fascinating one. Now, the problem you mentioned was that for a long time people had the wrong idea about wolves because they were studying wolves in captivity. And it seems obvious in retrospect, you know, that, well, if you're studying wolves in a particular very artificial condition, how on earth would we expect that to tell us about wolves in their natural condition. But having said that, a lot of psychology experiments on humans are studying humans in very artificial situations and generalising out. How much of that problem is that for you, Christine? Because presumably a lot of the time you're studying animals, you're either having to put them in an artificial laboratory condition or they're in a particular farming condition, which again may reflect more about the particular farming condition than about the nature of the animals. Mm. How do you get around this? Well, it, it is difficult because what you really want to be able to do is look at an animal in its evolved environment. And when you have domesticated a cow or a pig or a chicken or a dog, then it is no longer subject to natural selection. So you can't quite look at it in the same way. So you can either try and look at the ancestor in its natural evolved environment, or you can try and put a domestic animal in as natural environment as you can imagine. But there is no natural environment, really, for a domestic animal. So you, you just have to accept that problem, I think. I mean, in a sense, you have to accept the fact that you always discover something about an animal in a particular situation. Yeah. You, you always be careful by saying, we now know something about the animal full stop, because yeah. the situation always makes a difference. Actually, one brief thing, John, actually, you, you, you distinguish between tame mm. and domesticated. Could you just explain what that distinction is and, and why it's important? Um, yeah, I mean, a tame animal is just one that is easily approached and if it's the right size and shape handled by people. It doesn't mean that there's been any genetic change at all. In fact, there probably hasn't been. It may actually be have originally been a wild animal that just happens to be tame, or it may be an animal that's been born in a zoo and has become tame because it's just got used to having people around it. Uh, a domesticated animal has gone through at least one set and quite often several sets of changes over its history as of living with man and is genetically distinct from the wild ancestor, even though we'll probably still be the same species. It will be under the control of man in terms of its breeding and its feeding and its social relationships to some extent. And the dog is, you know, to my way of thinking, is the most extreme domesticated animal because not only, you know, like farm animals, have we domesticated them uh, to the point of looking after them, but also we've integrated them into our social systems. You know, lots of human culture uh, going back thousands of years has got dogs as an integral part and those bits of human culture wouldn't have worked in quite the way they do anyway without the dog being there and so I think that's a, you know really profound integration. Even then though you have to be a bit careful don't you? Okay it's not straightforwardly the case that a dog is from birth adapted to live harmoniously with humans. Uh, it has the ability to adapt and this ability to adapt itself to our environment still needs the right upbringing in order to bring out that ability. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they seem to be born with a focus which means that they learn a lot from people as soon as they're old enough to do so, so three or four weeks old and onwards. And they seem to have some sort of inherent recognition of this is a person who's looking after me. 
But beyond that, it all has to be learned. It's not in there, you know, genetically programmed. They don't know what humans look like because they've got some picture that, it, that grows in their brain. They have, there must be something that enables them to latch onto us in the same way that there's something that enables them to recognise what their mother is, you know, who she is. But it's probably a pretty crude starting point, and then all the detail is added on by learning. And you can see that particularly in dingoes, which are dogs which were let loose by mistake in northern Australia about three and a half thousand years ago, went completely wild. Australia was a wonderful place for any kind of predator to live because the marsupial predators, the ones that were natural ones that were there, were pretty rubbish, I think. They certainly were easily outcompeted by dingoes. Dogs don't outcompete predators anywhere else in the world, but they were able to do in Australia. So the dingo became essentially a wild dog, and it's been a wild dog for thousands of generations. But you can go out into the bush, and the native Australians do, and pick up a dingo puppy that's, uh, its eyes are just opening, and you obviously have to feed it and wean it yourself. But that will grow into a dog, a companion dog, and behave like almost any other dog. So genetically, they're dogs. But because 99% of them never see a human being until they're six months old, and then only down the other end, the wrong end of a gun or a, or a trap, they never become socialised to people, and they stay dogs, they stay wild animals. Well, one of the things most fascinating about the book for me is the insight it gives into the to inner lives of dogs. Now, there's a, a broader issue here, perhaps I'll ask Christine about this, because when you start thinking about the inner lives of animals, there's this concern people have that it's just not possible to do that scientifically. You're talking about subjective experience, and that's just not something which is scientifically tractable. What's the answer to that question about how you actually do it? Just a small question. (laughs) Well, I think you can at least look to see um, what are the correlates of conscious experience or sentience in humans and see which types of animals have brains that might support that. And if you do that, then all vertebrates just about come into that category. So clearly dogs and farm animals do. So you know you're at a good starting point. That's one thing you can do. You can speculate about possible functions of consciousness. You won't get anywhere very much because almost everything that can be done consciously can be done unconsciously as well. So it's not going to lead you to the right answer. So I think in the end what you can do is you can put it to one side and you can say, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. They have the type of brain that should support sentience. Let's go with that. Now let's look to see what they can actually do. How do they actually use their brains? How do they think? What sort of representations do they have of the world around them? And let's just assume, if we want to, that all those experiences and abilities might be accompanied by subjective feelings. And personally, I think that's about as far as we can get. And I'm I'm quite happy with that. I don't like people who draw absolute lines too much and say great apes can do it, dogs can't. So if we grant the benefit of the doubt and say that a mammal, a dog or a cow might have the ability to be conscious, then I think that we can accept that their actual subjective experiences like to be very, very different from ours. So we can get the best guesses possible by understanding much more about the perceptual world. And I think John's done a fantastic service to dogs in his book with with the chapter on olfaction, Mm. just showing how very, very different their sensory world is. I think in the end, we still have to imagine if we want to what that might translate to in terms of subjective experience and I'm not sure whether we'll ever get there. I find it hard to imagine how an olfactory world would feel. Nagel wrote a paper asking exactly that question about bats, you know, what is it like to be a bat? We can all speculate. I sometimes try to imagine what it might be like to be my horse and have such a big nose. What would it feel like? 
but I think we speculate, but I think we can do informed speculation by understanding much more about sensory capacities. Our limits of imagination are actually getting in the way of understanding as well, because one of the many interesting almost asides that comes up in your book was this idea that for a long time it was assumed that puppies basically had no perception of the world because they're born deaf and blind. And this is anthropocentrism because, because they're deaf and blind, it was assumed, well, they don't know what's going on severely underestimated the extent to which they know what's going on because of their smell. So perhaps you can tell us a bit more about how, se- how central sense of smell really is to dogs. And even, it's even important for how they navigate, more important than sight even. Most of the time more important, but uh, obviously dogs, some dogs do have quite good long sight. Uh, their, their eyesight's not nearly as good as ours, even the best sighted dogs. But the major- vast majority of dogs rely on their sense of, sense of smell a lot more than their sense of vision. And I think it's, as you say, it's something that's actually very difficult to get our head around. They have this tremendous reliance on scent, which after 30 years of thinking about it, I still haven't quite got my head around. I mean, I can kind of put myself in a situation of being a dog, but I don't know. People say to me, you know, why do dogs sniff lampposts all the time? And I can give you some guesses, and I, if I'm asked, I will. But the, ultimately, the answer is, I don't know. I don't know what's going through their head. It's almost impossible to know what is going through a dog's head. But they do spend, yeah, it's clearly important to them. They spend a lot of time doing it. And <laughs> um, then another thing is sense of time. I think this is a fascinating one. Animals in general have a very different sense of of time. Again, I don't think you've got anything to say about that, Christine. Oh, I think we're only just beginning to understand animals' perception of time. I mean, I think one example, again, from a chicken perspective, is that we've only just found out that chickens can actually wait. They can show some self-control and wait for a few seconds to get a bigger reward. So they are able to sort of appreciate that if they do this, they'll have to wait longer, but they'll get more. If they do this, they'll get something immediately. So chickens can sort of Uh, evaluate time over a period of a few seconds but we also think that they're not very good at evaluating longer term outcomes so they'll they'll do stupid things and get shut in small boxes for hours and hours on end and they won't be able to sort of appreciate that sort of time perspective and and for dogs again i mean punishing a dog for example for something it's done i mean how close to the naughty thing do you have to punish them for for the dog to even know that's what they're being punished for with many dogs, about two seconds, and provided nothing has happened, uh, else has happened in those two seconds as well. All the, the, the data from training suggests that they cannot think back in time. The most recent thing that's happened is the most important thing as far as a dog is concerned. If you enjoyed that, with the help of the Bristol Festival of Ideas, we'll be recording further microphilosophy at Foils events over coming months. Go to foils.co.uk or to ideasfestival.co.uk for details, or follow the microphilosophy Twitter feed, or subscribe to the feed at julianbagini.com. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.